This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today, I have Dr. Garrett Felber, author of Those Who Know, Don't Say, The Nation of Islam, The Black Freedom Movement, and The Carceral State, published in 2020 by UNC Press. Dr. Felber is an assistant professor of history at the University of Mississippi, where he focuses on African American history and critical prison studies and 20th century America. Welcome to the show, Dr. Felber. Thank you for having me on, Adam. Outstanding, outstanding. So, uh, you know, describe how you came to write Those Who Know, Don't Say. By the way, love the title. <laughs> oh, by way of the title. Okay. Um, I'll try and give the, the short version of this. So I was working, <laughs> the short version starts in 2008. Um, I was working on the Malcolm X Project with the, with the late um, scholar activist Manny Marable, who... Um, had been working on what would become his Pulitzer Prize-winning biography, uh, A Life of Reinvention. And I was a master's student at Columbia University. Uh, I spent about three years as uh, a research assistant on that, on that project. And when the book came out in 2011, I was in the first year of my PhD program. And one of the things that I told myself when I began that program was that I was leaving Malcolm behind. I was going to write the dissertation that I had come to Columbia to sort of begin working on, which was really a, a story about um, jazz and Black nationalism and cultural appropriation. And I had planned to pursue that at Michigan. And the book came out and, um, as you probably know, won some acclaim, also was very controversial. And I got a little bit sucked back in to the Malcolm Vortex Um in part just because while I was working as a researcher on that project, I was finding things in the archive that, um, that I thought conflicted or, you know, um, challenged some of the ways that Dr. Marable read the nation of Islam and its politics uh, and its place within the black freedom movement. So the title, those who know, don't say, uh, is part of a phrase that Muslims in the nation would, um, respond to the question of uh, their political engagement with. So they would say those who know don't say and those who say don't know. And to me, it sort of captured the ambiguity of the nation's politics, some of its strategic silences, um, the way at different times that the NOI would be political, but say it wasn't. Um, And just the reasons why, uh, in many ways, I felt like to borrow the phrase of uh, Patricia Hill Collins, that it was hidden in plain sight. So that really, that phrase, when I read that actually in Sierra Lincoln's book, um, stuck with me as kind of a way of capturing how the nation was both everywhere in the, in the Black freedom struggle, but nowhere in the literature of that struggle. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, 
reading your book and and you know trying to first of all get ready for comp so uh th- thank you so much for uh helping helping a brother out there you know appreciate it um but uh but also you know reading through the literature you're right like th- there are you know so many ways and, and this is why you know historians you know you could say are always employed but that's another podcast but um you know it, it just just shows you that there's always new things to be found in archives, you know, even if you're, you know, working as a um, graduate assistant on an amazing project like uh, the late Manning Marable's um, uh, bio was. And so, uh, you know, speaking of really archives, you know, you spoke about your experience as, a, as an assistant there. Um, you know, what other archives did you utilize, you know, in in, in your work? And, and, you know, also, you know, thinking about strategies, right, in the archive as well that you use as considering the kinds of uh, archival information that you're sifting through. Well, thank you for this question, this uh, very historian's question. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, you know, I love talking about archives. So, um, I mean, I'll say one, the first and foremost, I was the beneficiary of beginning with his archive. So I was starting with a, you know, a decade long plus project. So I got to sort of intervene in that archive and think about where are the gaps um, or where are the questions that I have that that are openings in in that archive. So um, I really benefited from from that starting place. And I guess I, I began by just thinking about, okay, well, if if to me, I think the nation is political in ways that haven't been recognized, what are the sites of that politics? So I started thinking about, uh, in many ways, this kind of, I, I was an American studies PhD, not a um, history PhD. So I think it kind of came out of that disciplinary frame. I was thinking about like, what are the sites of struggle? Um, So originally the dissertation was formed around three sites, courtrooms, college campuses, and prisons. Um, And I sort of went from there to think about where are the archival sources that would illuminate those sites of struggle. And that's really when I realized how much I'd have to be relying on state-driven narratives about the nation because the NOI doesn't have, you know, some official archive. I, I benefited from having Malcolm's papers at the Schomburg, which had uh, recently been opened, and not a lot of scholars had had a chance to kind of dive into those. Um, but a lot of it was reading state archives against the grain, and then you know, part of it was just at some point I realized I, I was very resistant to the idea that I was writing a carceral studies project um, or a a history of the state. That's not like what I set out to do. I really wanted to write a social movement history um, of the Black Freedom Movement, the NOI's place within it. And I sort of got to the point where I realized like if I'm going to be relying this heavily on state documents, then I'm telling a history of the state uh, as much as I wind up telling a history of the nation. I'm telling a history of the nation through the state's eyes. So in that way, the the archive shaped the project a lot. Um, and then I guess in terms of trying to be creative and find um, access to voices that I didn't have, one of the things I relied heavily on is um, court transcripts. So I just didn't have access to many of the voices of incarcerated Muslims that I wanted. And the place that I found those was um, in these transcripts. So I sort of use those almost as oral histories as, you know, they were testifying to the violence of the state and, and they would often 
give meticulous records of of their direct action and and the state surveillance. So those became a really um, crucial archive for me. Mm. Yeah, and and one of the, I think in you know there there are many things y'all that you're gonna love about this book because we already know y'all gonna go out there and support UNC Press like y'all always do. I appreciate you in advance. And get when you get when, hey 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 for sure get the get that code get that code I see you Mark Simpson um and so you know one of the uh, the one of the parts about your book that you see right as a unifying theme um the, the this this term that you use dialectics of discipline um I, I thought w- w- was fascinating can you can you unpack that a bit for for the audience yeah so I should say first and. At, at, at the start that um, I am not a theory head. I, through most of my grad school, was really resistant to the idea of sort sort of like leading with theory. I wanted to lead mm-hmm. with ar- archives. And the last thing that I ever envisioned was coming up with an alliterative theoretical framework for my book. Um, and so what, what wound up happening was I was kind of playing this chicken or the egg game where I would... Um, see some sort of thing that incarcerated Muslims were doing, for example, prison litigation as a strategy. And then I would see something that the prison was doing. For example, at Attica, they had this rule, rule 21. And rule 21 was established to say that if you had legal materials in your cell that were not your own, that you could be punished. And that was specifically to curb jailhouse lawyers authoring writs for people who didn't have the legal literacy to, to do so themselves. And so I would sort of follow these sort of um, acts of resistance or acts of oppression by the state. And I realized, you know, it was a sort of basic epiphany, which is that this was dialectical, not one first or the other second, that these were happening in relation to one another. And so that was the dialectics part. The second half of that, the discipline, was that, you know, there was there were sort of multiple meanings to discipline. One is the coercive punitive discipline of the state, sort of Foucault's uh, disciplining of subjects. And then on the other hand, that the the Nation of Islam provided a sort of individual discipline as well as collective discipline that challenged the state. So in some cases, that was um, organizing hunger strikes or, um, you know, the famous scene in the autobiography of Malcolm X where at Malcolm's protesting Johnson Hinton's um, beating by police and you know the fruit of islam assemble outside of the police precinct and he sort of waves his hand um and everyone disperses and the thing that terrified police was that discipline of of the fruit so i sort of started thinking about the way that discipline both individually and collectively is a form of resistance and i guess the third sort of um form of discipline that I started playing around with was understanding disciplinary knowledge. Um, so the way that all of these sort of actors, whether they're journalists or academics or, um, you know, cops or um, prison guards are knowledge producers and they form a, a, a set of um, beliefs about the nation of Islam that continue to shape the way the NOI is portrayed to this day. So there's kind of collective and individual resistance as discipline, there's coercive punitive discipline, and then there's disciplinary knowledge and the way that that um, shapes our understandings of the nation. Mm. And 
there, hey, you know, like, you know, it's it's very interesting because you said that you're not a theory guy uh, because, you know, I'm hey, I'm right there with you. And once my dissertation's done, I'll probably end up saying the same, you know, thing that you did, just just unpacking it with, you know, the future uh, hosts of New Books and AFAM. Um, but I, but I actually found your um, your your term like to actually be important for me as I read through your book, because I reflected back on it uh, quite often, um, actually a lot. So so I appreciate you for for unpacking that for for myself and the listeners as well. Um, and, and also one of the and other parts I think is important to, to unpack just before we go a little bit further, right? Because, you know, there are a lot of, um, there, 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 there are a lot of thoughts that people have about the, uh, the, the about the NOI. Um, so, so I thought it'd be good right now to ask what are, what are common misconceptions that, you know, people might have about the NOI that your work in a way kind of tears down a bit. So, I, I sort of talk about the ways that um, that phrase black Muslims and um, perhaps we can get more specifically to that question, how that op- sort of offered a framework to marginalize the nation of Islam from from two uh, communities or movements. And on one hand, it marginalized them from sort of global Islam, um, a, a sort of broader community um, or what's called the Ummah um, of Muslims. And then on the other hand, from uh, the civil rights movement or from the black freedom struggle more broadly. So I think typically when when I would, you know, if you taught a civil rights class, like a long civil rights class, um, you would. Well, I shouldn't say if you taught, if you uh, if you took a class, right, you would often come across maybe Malcolm, but not the Nation of Islam. Or you would come across Elijah Muhammad um, and Malcolm. but there's no real sustained, there's often not a sustained understanding of the nation of Islam in relationship to um, the mid-century black freedom movement. So that was one of the sort of places of misunderstanding. And, um, and the other, I guess, was, yeah, just really, not to say that necessarily, um, I don't, I don't really have a stake in claiming that the NOI is or is not orthodox Islam, whatever that means, but rather to say that Muslims in the nation were concerned and um, invested in being in conversation with um, different forms of Islam across across the world. So to sort of presume that there was this sectarian um, divide that completely marginalized them or that they self-marginalized, I think, was another sort of misconception that I was challenging. And you sure, and you certainly did, and you certainly did. And so, um, one of you know, one of the things that's really interesting, right? So, so you brought up uh, C. Eric Lincoln, and right, we're we're both you know uh, academics and such, and so our um, our work is seen as uh, you know important in a way that others might not be, right? Who might write about similar things. So, can you a bit talk about academia and? the nation of Islam, especially connected to, uh, C. Eric, uh, Lincoln's, uh, uh, book on the black, mu- on the quote unquote black Muslims that, that, that he, uh, authored. Yeah. So that, I mean, part of, um, what I was trying to do really is historicize where 
some of these things come from. Because, um, you know, one of the things I've, I've noticed in, in spending about a decade, um, you know, writing about and researching the Nation of Islam, it's not like people um, are just sort of ignorant to the nation. Like people th- think they have quite a bit of knowledge about the Nation of Islam. So where does that knowledge come from? And some of it's experiential, um, but a lot of it is sort of rooted in this like Cold War era late 1950s, early 1960s moment. Um, So I sort of pinpoint two moments in the book where there's really um, a formative framework for the nation. The the first is The Hate That Hate Produced, this documentary um, that I discuss in in 1959. And C.R. Lincoln sort of takes the popularity of of this documentary and pitches it to his dissertation committee um, where he's at... um, Boston University, he's probably only going to be able to write a chapter about the Nation of Islam because his committee's like, we don't know, we don't know what this is. You know, he's a scholar of um, black religion. And he uses the hate that hate produced to to make the case that this is a full-length dissertation project. And that quickly turns into um, the first full-length academic book, um, The Black Muslims in America. And I talk a little bit about how that phrase, the black Muslims, is coined and and put into the world by Lincoln and how at that moment, Malcolm and many others in the nation um, find it appalling. Uh, you know, the idea that they are the sort of um, the function of the adjective black before Muslims implies that there's some sort of difference between them and other Muslims. Um, and I also talk about how, you know, within... Uh, the nation's theology, like all all black people are Muslim. So um, there's several reasons why this doesn't work sort of within their framework. Um, and the, the book is really taken up by a couple of key groups. So one of them um, is college students for all sorts of reasons, but the other is law enforcement. So uh, in the book, I, I talk a lot about the ways that his book sort of circulates within uh, law enforcement circles and how he sort of positions himself um, as an expert to law enforcement um, as a as a way of sort of you know explaining uh, the nation to cops and prison commissioners. Mm. Yeah, and and I think that you know as kind of just thinking about some of um, some of the work that we do and how it can be used right without our knowledge right like we produce a particular uh you know book or article or whatever and then it takes on a life of its own but it's different when you deliberately are trying to do that right um so 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 i found that um story um uh, of c eric lincoln and how his um dissertation comes to be first of all it's incredible how that could even happen just looking back i guess 60 years later but um but yeah i just found that fascinating and something else I found fascinating was this. Um, you detail how uh, NOI, right, if we go to World War II, that N- the uh, NOI war resistors were among the largest group of black war resistors, right, um, in, in the nation, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. Tell it, like, can you tell us the significance of that? Yeah, so they were, they were the largest group of... Um black conscientious objectors during World War II. And that was another story that I just felt like it, it sort of got told, 
you know, basically the the story of the nation inside prisons was always told through two figures. It was Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad. And it was often just told in a very sort of like we all, well, we all know that the nation has a um, presence in prisons because of Malcolm and because Elijah Muhammad, you know, resisted the draft during World War II. Um, but my sort of central question was like, well, what did that mean? Like what, it, it wasn't just Elijah Muhammad, right? It was almost a hundred men in a relatively small organization um, during World War II that served time throughout the whole war. And what did it mean for them to be incarcerated with other conscientious objectors? So this whole, I, I entered this whole world of, of uh, conscientious objectors um, where, you know, I'm, I'm finding Bayard Rustin and I'm finding George Hauser and James Peck and Elijah Muhammad and Wallace Nelson. And so there's this whole sort of political world happening during the war in prisons. And, and there's just these, yeah, there's these fascinating sort of questions about, um, about organizing, like Rustin and others are trying to desegregate federal prisons and they're trying to recruit Muslims in the nation. And they're like, we're not interested in desegregation, right? Like they're interested in practicing Islam and, and, um, you know, what they would call racial separation. So there's just all these kind of like interesting politics happening um, during the war within federal prisons. And um, yeah, I mean, I I still feel like there's a ton of room for people uh, to explore that world um, of, of organizing and politicizing. Um, I just found it fascinating. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. And, and we can talk about this a little later, too, because, you know, you're, um, you know, one of the ways that uh, I know you, right, you're you're very much uh, an organizer yourself. Right. So, so you know, I, I definitely want to um, talk about that with, you know, your own particular work um, down in Mississippi, you know, at some point, too, um, because to me, I, th- I think it's always fascinating seeing, you know, how, uh, you know, scholar activism uh you know, comes to be. So we can talk about that a little, little later. Um, but, but an, another, you know, thing that I, that I was interested in as well, right? So, so as someone who studies slavery, I, I think about, you know, people always talk about, um, you know, the plantation and, and uh, forms of surveillance and such like that too. And they apply that into, um, you know, the surveillance state and also into uh, carceral uh, apparatuses as well. And so, um, it brings me to my question about the relationship that you show in your book between freedom um, and, and really between freedom and surveillance, really defining the relationship between incarcerated Muslims and, and, and prison officials, um, you know, almost as a really as a contradiction in a way. Um, so can you detail this a bit more? Because I, I really found your insight on this in the book fairly like like super duper fascinating. Mm. Okay. So the, so the relationship between 
incarcerated Muslims and prison officials. I just want to make sure. I yeah, 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 no, no, I can, I can, I can redo it again. But, um, you know, you, you actually highlighted um, the, I, I would say the contradiction, contradiction rather, uh, between freedom and surveillance defining the relationship between incarcerated Muslims and, and prison officials. Um, at least that's how I read it, right? I, I might be, uh, 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 I might have misread it, but, um, you know, I, I thought that your insight on what I thought you, you, you put out there was, was fascinating. So um, if, if that was a cogent question. Yeah, and, and now I'm really intrigued by, by your reading of it too, because I feel like you're bringing something to it. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess the thing that I, you know, as a, I'm, I'm looking through in part, um, as I mentioned in terms of the archives, like I'm, lo- I'm looking into the world of Muslim prison organizing through the surveillance of the state, because that's sort of the, the access that I have to that archive is through the eyes of the state. And in doing so, I, I sort of just realized the ways that prison officials become arbiters of all sorts of different things, such as like what constitutes Islamic orthodoxy. I mean, you don't often, I don't think, think about prison guards as sort of as that being within their purview. Um, but they were doing things like, you know, surveilling who was eating pork, right? And who wasn't. And if people weren't eating pork, they would classify them as Muslim. And then, of course, they would, if they threw away pork, they would say, oh, you're destroying state property. Um, And, you know, there were all these, they had a prison guard who was undercover um, specifically to surveil Muslims in prison. They were giving disciplinary infractions for all sorts of religious um, practices like um, ablution. Like if someone was splashing water in the morning, they would give them a disciplinary infraction. So there were all these ways that... um, religious practice was being sort of mitigated and religious orthodoxy being articulated by the state. Um, And one of the things that I, I struggled with sometimes was like trying not to read faith always through a kind of political lens, like through my own, like saying, okay, this is political resistance. And, um, but you know, I, I think through that process came to realize that the ways in which um, state surveillance and state violence politicizes things that are not, of course, inherently political, um, but in that context be, become deeply politicized. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but this was sort of the, um, in terms of surveillance and the relationship between surveillance and um, at least religious practice, how I, how I kind of... Right came to understand that no 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 you you, you did because um the way the, the 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 way that prison officials functioned i thought was fascinating um in terms of uh you know the 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 i guess the the rights that the that the that the uh, prisoners were trying to you know try not necessarily just just acquire but to to push uh for so so i thought that their um their relationship was was uh, really interesting in how you developed it uh, th- throughout the text. So, um, and and also one of the, the other parts I, I thought you know talking about rights specifically and and prisoner rights, um, you detail how um, you know and this is quoted from the book uh, the the early 1960s witnessed a significant transformation 
and the rights of prisoners and their visibility, largely due to the litigation and organizing of the Muslim Brotherhood as the NOI was known inside prisons. Um, You know, I, I was just fascinating about that particular passage and how you know, how were their contributions so vital in this particular way to really, you know, shape uh, a, a prisoner a prisoner rights in this particular time frame? I, I thought it was just, just fascinating. Yeah, so this was all stuff that I, I didn't know until I sort of started diving into um, incarcerated organizing um, for this project. But, you know, there's this 1871... Uh, Supreme Court ruling Ruffin v. Commonwealth that defines incarcerated people as a slave of the state. And so um, incarcerated people basically from 1871 forward have no constitutional rights. This is known as the hands-off period where the judicial branch um, essentially says we have no jurisdiction over uh, sort of disciplinary um, function. That's that's the corrections branch. And it's really not until... um, the Nation of Islam in the late 50s and early 60s starts to push this through um, these campaigns for basic religious rights, such as access to the Quran in Arabic, uh, being able to correspond with ministers outside, having access to um, black newspapers where Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X's um, editorials are being carried prior to the development of Muhammad Speaks, having religious medals, so all these sort of basic um, religious rights that they're asking for that is the basis for this um, 1964 case, Cooper v. Pate, which is also uh, an incarcerated Muslim in um, at Stateville um, that uh, Toussaint Lozier writes about. So that case is seen as sort of the Brown v. Board of the prisoners' rights movement um, in the sense that it establishes for the first time firmly that incarcerated people do in fact have constitutional rights. And once that is opened up, And especially they carve out this kind of space of um, using this clause, Section 1983 clause. It offers this whole burgeoning of litigation that we see with what we typically think of as the prisoners' rights movement. So I just felt like we don't really understand um, the role that the Nation of Islam had in you know, in in many ways, kind of birthing the prisoners' rights movement and laying the constitutional groundwork for people to even claim access to the constitution. And that makes me think about what what would we look or how would we look at the NOI differently if we saw them specifically through the lens of what you just brought up, that for there to be, you know, a, a prisoners' rights movement right of the mid uh, 20th century, you have to put uh, the NOI within it, right, and 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 that to me, um, I, like like you said, right, you didn't know it before you wrote it. Lord knows, I ain't, I didn't realize that before I read your book. So you mm-hmm. know that that's just uh, a fascinating stuff, and it also makes me think about uh, not only um, you know changing minds on on this, but also just thinking about um, the the courtroom, right? Because I think the courtroom is a um, is a critical site within, you know, your, your, your text. And you, you spoke about this before, kind of like the origins of the project. Um, so, so I found the way that you used uh, or, or how you saw the NOI using the courtroom as a public spectacle to project their message is fascinating. Um, can, you, can you detail a bit about how the NOI 
um, you know, use the, the courtroom in, 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 you know, almost as a, a stage for political theater in a way. Yeah, so that's that was very much how, um, you know, as I said, I was I was trying to think about what are the sites of struggle and then what are the strategies that the NOI uses to be political? And um, I mean, I think probably my uh, my love of Robin Kelly's work comes through the most in, in this section, you know, where I'm, I'm just trying to think of like, what are the the infra politics? What are the sort of ways that people are using um, all of these spaces and different methods to be political? Um, so so what I started doing was looking through these these police brutality cases where um, time and time again, the Nation of Islam is um, on trial. Members of the nation are on trial. And, you know, it always starts with police violence against Muslims, but results in them being tried and how they use uh, the space. I love that I can hear the ice cream truck because you're always tweeting about the ice cream truck. And now I actually get yes. to hear it. Oh, the ice gosh. cream truck is outside. <laughs> uh, that's my favorite um, i love it so that you know so there are all these ways that they were using the courtroom space right to try to shift and put the state on trial um so there was no they didn't believe in the justice of the courtroom right um but they did believe in sort of using that space strategically and so one of the ways that they would do that um like i talk about photography so like malcolm uh, a lot of people don't know this but malcolm's uh, amateur photographer. So he goes around with his camera all the time, taking gorgeous photos, many of which um, you can see at the Schomburg Center. And he would be at trial, you know, taking pictures of of cops um, and, and sort of intimidating them and saying, and, you know, and they would circulate like in his papers, you would find pictures of uh, cops and police commissioners with arrows so I talk a little bit about like counter surveillance, you know, like the NOI is not just being surveilled. They're also performing counter surveillance on the state. Um, another thing I talk about is the way that they demanded separate seating for for um, black Muslim women um, in Los Angeles. And there's this interesting case where uh, because it's happening at the same time as Birmingham and sort of the, the framework of desegregation is on everyone's mind. uh the the judge in the case actually rules that they have to desegregate. Um, so there's this whole kind of gap between the understanding that the nation of Islam has of racial separation versus segregation and the sort of uh, liberal understanding of what racial segregation means and that we all have to be against racial segregation. So these black women shouldn't be able to sit in this section by themselves. Um and, you know, all these sort of things, they're like, they're bringing in the door um, with the with the bullets through. So I think there's a lot of ways in which this kind of acts as a, a prehistory to some of the things that we see in the Black Power movement. Like I, I immediately came to mind, you know, the Fred Hampton, um, like having people tour the house. Um, but just all these sort of creative ways that the nation is using a space um, that is deeply unjust to try and, um, you know, put the state on trial, reframe this not about being assault on a peace officer, but being about violence against um, black and brown communities, all of that. I mean, it's sort of, you know, the way that they form coalition is through the courtroom. And and how can we sort of think about that? Coalition through the courtroom, more alliteration. I like it. (laughs) 
I, I, I see what you're doing there. I see what you're oh, doing man. there. My game is up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's as rich as all the ice cream that's outside with uh, the ice cream, man. <laughs> oh man I, I, on the side note i'm actually very happy that they, that you caught that live and it's actually gonna be streamed because this is i'm, I'm not lying y'all can actually yeah, no. listen to it now, now i know you're not just going crazy in there <laughs> no no like for real for real um and, and and you know what you just talked about was very interesting to me because um you know coalition building and radical politics especially when you're talking about um who you kind of see as a uh, uh, kind of you're, you're thinking with in this way with uh, Dr. Uh, Robin D.G. Kelly. Um, and, and it brings me to think about how does uh, those who know don't say help you uh, think broadly or even more capaciously about coalition building and also radical politics, you know, just generally speaking within the book, but also outside the book too, right? Because, because obviously our work, I think, has... Uh, it definitely has ramifications on culture too. Like I said, the streets have been talking about your book, Doc. The streets have been talking. <laughs> um, yeah. So coalition. I mean, part of what I wanted to reframe is there. There was a tendency that I saw within um, literature on, let's just say, the long civil rights movement to mm-hmm. to see the NOI as um, marginal or even kind of self isolating and what I wanted to do is is center the nation and the ways that the nation was actually trying to build broad-based Black United Front coalitions um, that we often think about as kind of, again, a later Black power formation. Um, and, and the place that I found that most was at the local level. So it also made me think about the tensions between local and national organizing. Um, and I'll, I'll just give you two examples from the book. So one of them is this coalition that last maybe nine months, a year, generously, um, in Harlem called the Emergency Committee. And, you know, this is a broad-based Black United Front coalition. It has people, it's started by, uh, or called, you know, about by A. Philip Randolph and um, Rustin and others. And it's, uh, again, in response to police violence in Harlem. And this coalition knows that in Harlem, they're going to need to work with Black nationalists. Um, so they include, you know, Louis Michaud um, of the, you know, Black Nationalist Bookstore in Harlem. They include Porkchop Davis, the famous uh, Street Corner Order, Malcolm, other members of the temple. Um, and, you know, these folks don't agree politically necessarily. Um, you have Anna Arnold Hedgeman, who, you know, was in the 1959 document uh, documentary series the hate that hate produced denouncing the nation of islam as a black hate group so it's a it's an uncomfortable coalition and that's really what coalitions are um so i think that that was a lesson that i took from this is like you have to understand that coalition work is tenuous and uncomfortable that's how you know it's a coalition right um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, as, as scholars you know i'm a huge um fan of studying these kind of fleeting um you know, what some might see as failed uh, organizations or coalitions, because in, in some ways, what, what we see as their failings are ex- examples of their ambition, of their breadth. Um, again, kind of building on, on Robin Kelly's idea that, that we should look for the questions that social movements raise as much as their answers. So that was something that I really wanted to look at is like, 
how did these coalitions raise new questions rather than what victories did they win? How long did they last? You know, that to me wasn't necessarily a sign of success. Um, and, and the other was in, in Los Angeles, you know, sort of the effort to build a Black United Front um, against police violence um, that, you know, was really broad-based um, and again, fractured. Um, but what are the sort of lessons of that fracturing? I mean, in, in part, the lesson was um, that there was, you know, the Black church, um, there were a bunch of ministers who denounced the nation as a hate group at the same time that they tried to denounce police brutality. So there's this kind of like dance that was happening there. Um, and then, like I said, the local national, right? So on the local level, the NAACP was forming in coalition with the nation. And on the national level, they were getting a lot of blowback, especially from white liberal donors saying, why is the nation or why is the NAACP working with the nation? And, and, you know, they come down and sort of create this um, really debilitating set of, uh, rules that local NAACP um, chapter leaders have to follow, um, specifically not referencing coalitional work with the nation, specifically chairing any panel. Um, so I felt like it was a, it was really productive to explore what we might see as failed coalitions and to see how on the local level, this stuff is happening. And when we look at the national level, it looks like the NAACP and the nation have nothing to do with each other. Um, and are spending all their time denouncing one another as either Uncle Tom's or a black KKK. And then you see what you're going to read in Dr. Garrett Felber's book, y'all. It's going to be mind-blowing. Believe me, it was like that for me. Um, and for, for, for sure. For sure. And, um, you know, we had referenced uh, uh, Twitter, uh, you know, during the, uh, during, during the ice cream uh, fiasco. <laughs> Uh, not, I'm, I'm playing, it was no fiasco. It was actually pretty nice. Um, but you know, we, we spoke about that a bit. Um, and I know that prison education is, uh, also one of the things I, I, I know of, of your particular work. Um, you know, and, and one of the great things about you as a teacher, um, and so in your research conceptualization or writing stage of uh, those who know, don't say, did you consult or let any of the students of yours, um, that, that you taught, um, that that are in prison, read some of your work or or talk to them about it to kind of see what they think about about what you're writing. Yeah, I mean, I think it was probably more organic than anything, sort of in conversation. Um, I mean, I, I shared my dissertation with a few folks, um, but really, we were mostly it, it, at the time I was doing this writing. It was mostly organizing, um, so. You know, I felt like the last thing anyone wants to do is read my manuscript. Um, but you know, <laughs> yeah, it's sh- it shaped so much of my thinking about about political work and inside organizing. And I mean, I'll share this because it's, it's embarrassing. Um, but, you know, I was talking about so I have that section in the book where I'm talking about the takeovers of solitary confinement and comparing that to jail, no bail. And I'm like, you know, it's, it's bouncing around in my head. I'm like, this is really fascinating that these two things are happening at the same time. Like, what does it mean that incarcerated Muslims are taking over solitary in the same way that jail no bail is happening in the South? And um, my friend Joshua, who was incarcerated at the time, he's out now, thank goodness. Um, he, he was like, well, yeah, that makes sense because solitary is the jail of the prison. And it's like the most obvious thing that I was just like, oh yeah, 
Yep, you're right. Um, yeah. You know, and, and like, it's it's one of those things that's right in front of me. And I'm making the connection in this kind of, like, roundabout historical way. And he's making it in this very real, like, yeah, that's what solitary is. It's a jail within a jail. Um, so I feel like there were all sorts of examples of that where I was just kind of, um, things were bouncing around in my mind. And I was talking to people about the kind of organizing that we were doing um, largely at that time around building liberation literacy, um, in Oregon and yeah, in just so many ways, um, those experiences shaped my thinking about, um, organizing and, and sort of through that process, the book, cause I, I can't really disentangle writing the book and thinking about organizing. I feel like that's all one thing. Exactly, exactly, and and that's why I ask because I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated to hear uh, how some of my favorite scholars, um, you know, how do they, how do they come into the not only their work but also how do these things show up in their classroom? And for your work that you're doing, your classroom is not just at the University of Mississippi or wherever you are. It's you know, you're 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 working with a much broader public. Um, and, and so that's really good to know. And so, um, and it actually in a way, in a great way segues to one of my final questions, uh, what slash who inspires you to do the work that you do? And, and the work is broad, right? And we're talking about, you know, the whole, the whole shebang of, of what you do as, as a scholar and an activist and, and a human. Okay. So this question stresses me out because I'm going to feel like, I'm going to leave people out. So I just, I'm just saying that's going to happen. Gotcha. I appreciate the question. So I've already name dropped Robin like several times, so we can take that for a given. Um, Eula Taylor as a scholar and uh, just a really generous person. Um, I, you know, she and I have been talking about um, her wonderful book um, that came out on women in the nation um, since you know, I was kind of early days working on this project, but she was just always like, we would share materials with each other, but she's just, um, a model scholar and human, um, certainly organizing. I mean, Miriam Kaba's, uh, just incredible. And, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Um, I got to shout out Dan Berger cause Dan is also one of those people who, um, incredibly brilliant prolific writer, but somehow also has time to be very, very generous, uh, with everyone. I don't know if he has more hours in the day somehow, but, um, he read drafts of, of this back in like 2014 and gave me like line edits and, and just has such a vast knowledge about, um, you know, prison organizing and the black radical Mm -hmm. tradition. Um, Yeah, uh, I don't know. I feel like <laughs> I, um, those are the people who, who immediately come to mind. Yeah, and and, and also what I was going to do, I didn't I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, that's what acknowledgments are for <laughs> as well. Uh, you know, so so anybody the most stressful genre of writing, like like writing a book, is nothing as bad as writing acknowledgments. Oh. I, I I can I can imagine I can imagine so I'm going to ask this one and and you know add, add to your list um you know you had mentioned actually I think in your acknowledgments about uh, the importance of your book being published not only through UNC but also the uh, UNC Press's 
the uh, Justice, Power, and Politics series as well. Um, so, so if you can speak about, you know, the importance for you and your work being, uh, published within this amazing series. Yeah. I mean, shout out to Brandon for the incredible work that he's done putting JPP together and the series editors, uh, Heather and Thompson and Rhonda Williams. Um, I mean, one of the things for anyone who doesn't know, um, Brandon, he is so committed to um all the kind of unseen political work so like getting you know not just my book inside but like I do I do a lot of um work kind of facilitating radical study groups in prisons um and he's just been so crucial um for years now in in getting books to everyone and um and we've got some other things percolating I don't know if I'm at liberty to say them yet, but uh, a really exciting project linked to JPP um, to look out for specifically around, um, you know, getting material inside. Um, I'll leave it at that. Oh, yeah. Just um, leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's been a absolute honor to be in that series and, you know, just around like, you know, when I teach, I feel like I'm just teaching that, you know, when I teach like, my mass incarceration class, or I taught a a carceral state, um, historiography grad class. And, and, you know, it was like 80, 90%, um, JPP books because they're just dominating that field. Man. Hey, that, that, that's what it's all about. And, you know, UNC press has, uh, definitely filled the coffers of the McNeil, uh, household, uh, for, for the past couple of years since I've been doing this work, uh, with uh, new books and FM. So, uh, you know, shout out to everybody over there. Uh, can't wait for the next shipment. Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and, and before we get out of here, because, you know, we, 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 you know, got stuff to do and, and I know you, uh, you know, th- you know, we both got, got some, got some important business to handle. Um, and, and we don't want it to get knocks on the door because we've overstayed our welcome. Um, <laughs> one, the last question I'll ask you, um, you know, you, you hinted uh, in your acknowledgments as well about the importance of the African-American Intellectual History Society's uh, blog, Black Perspectives, and the organization as well um, as an as a important and critical site for, for some of the ideas that uh, we found in uh, Those Who Know, Don't Say. Uh, so can you talk to us about the importance of, of AIHS and Black Perspectives uh, to, to your work as a scholar and, and as a teacher, writer, activist, and, and the whole shebang? Yeah, I'm so glad you you brought up AIHS um, and and shout out to um, Dr. Keisha Blaine, um, Ashley Farmer, uh, those folks who have been really um, created such an important space. I know for for me and you and a, a whole bunch of other um, mm-hmm. junior scholars, and you know, in part, so so I wrote for a year for AIHS before Black Perspectives. It was just AIHS blog. Ooh, or um, oral history, oral history here, y'all. <laughs> 20, 2016. Um, and yeah, it was it was a, a, a place for me to think through, you know, that was when I was finishing the dissertation, kind of in transformation from dissertation to book. And, um, you know, I was, my undergrad was in creative writing. And I feel like, um, you know, one of the things that creative writers do really well is, is create, um, structures like different like I wrote 
poetry, uh, which is hard to believe. Um, but you know, you would, you would experiment with different forms and those different forms would, um, make writing really difficult, but, but be so productive. And I feel like the, the sort of blog form, um, it's been a while. I think it's like, what, 1500 words. You just did one Mm -hmm, of these. mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm. So like having to think through a chapter in 1500 words was such a great opportunity for me to really think about like, what is the, I mean, you know, we all struggle with this. Like we're in the weeds, we're hanging on to every footnote and detail. And it's like, at some point they all start to look of equal significance. And when you write a 1500 word post to a bunch of people across, you know, interests and some in the Academy, some outside, um, you know, early American is 20th century. Uh, it really, I think provides a great space to think through like, what is your what is your key intervention? What is your argument? Um, yeah, it was just a really crucial point in my um, career, and in, in terms of thinking about like what does public scholarship look like? What it, what is its relationship to my activism and um, and the research and writing I do? So I, I'm deeply deeply grateful to AIHS for that opportunity and and for just continuing to be such a um, a positive space for all of us hey and and look and i don't think that without aihs we would be here today because we met briefly in 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 person that is um in 2018 um when the conference was was hosted uh in in boston at brandeis university um and and i like i told you before offline I, i i from what it sounds like, you're fairly tired, and you know you uh, were, were at the we're at the desk, and um, you know struck up a conversation. It was like it's, it's pretty cool dude over here. And then two years later, we're you know I mean interviewing you for your book. So uh, great, great full circle. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of throwbacks, in person conference. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, like feels like. Uh, <laughs> it yeah. feels like so so long ago, and it also feels like, uh, considering the timing, that that also might not only be the the last conference we've been to, but it will be the next one that we go to in 2021 um, as well. So you know, sh- shouts out to LA. So um, you know, God willing, we still have it. Good grief, uh, but um, you know, so thank you so much, uh, Dr. Felber and, and for, for coming on. And, and once again, folks, we have had the amazing opportunity to talk to Dr. Garrett Felber, author of those who know, don't say the nation of Islam, the black freedom movement and the carceral state. And Dr. Felber is an assistant professor of history at the university of Mississippi, where he focuses on African-American history and critical prison studies and 20th century America. And I am your host, Adam McNeil from New Books and African American Studies. It's been an honor and a pleasure to once again uh, have another interview. And if you like this podcast episode, please rate us, review us wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, let us know how we're doing, you know, because we always need to know, you know, these particular comments because, you know, can't get any better if we don't know what to get better about. So uh, once again, folks, I'm your host, Adam McNeil of New Books and African American Studies. Until next time. Over and 